Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, everyone. I'm Isabel Trick, and I'm a senior associate at Global Council. Today, we will be discussing the impact of US-China tensions on the Gulf. Joining me today are um, Ahmed Helal. He is a practice lead with Global Council, especially in charge of the MENA region, and Jens Presthus, who is also a senior associate at Global Council. So last year, we've seen a lot of strain between the US and China with tensions over Taiwan, Hong Kong, the South China Sea, um, just to name a few. And 2022 doesn't look like the year where we're going to see a major shift in this. Just earlier this week, I saw um, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken criticize the Chinese government for being more assertive and aggressive than in previous decades. And he said the relationship was becoming even more adversarial. And um, of course, when two countries with as much um, global cloud as the US and China are increasingly competitive, that has reverberations around the world. So what we want to talk about today is especially how this has been playing out in one specific region, namely the Gulf. So Ahmed, you've been following this very closely. Can you maybe set the scene for us? So historically, the US has been very, very visible as the major foreign power in the Gulf. Can you give us some context to this to get us started? Yes, thank you, Isabel. Um, the the U.S. Uh, and the Gulf have been bound together in a strategic relationship basically since the Second World War, and it's it's uh, been based on a compact um, in which uh, the Gulf, the Middle East, uh, provides affordable hydrocarbons, oil and gas to the global economy, and the U.S. provides a security blanket and uh, acts as the as the primary security guarantor. Uh, in the Middle East. And you see that manifested in a very expansive military presence uh, by the U.S. with bases and, and, and troop deployments in the tens of thousands um, uh, up, up and down the coast of the Arabian uh, Peninsula. And the U.S. is also the primary, by distance, the primary arms supplier, weapons uh, 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 supplier to the region, uh, to, to modernize uh, the militaries, to beef up military uh, uh, defenses of, of the Middle Eastern uh, uh, nations. Uh, there, there has been some strain on that compact of late. Uh, you see China's rising economic influence in the region. Uh, it is uh, much more embedded with, with the uh, economies of the Middle East. Uh, China is right now the largest importer of oil and gas from the region. America's dependence on Middle Eastern oil and gas has declined significantly over the years because of what's called the shale oil revolution, in which uh, that has allowed America actually to become a net exporter of of natural gas and no longer has that uh, uh, dependence on on Middle East oil. Uh, By contrast, China's economy is growing very quickly. It uh, it is a manufacturing powerhouse, so it it needs access to, to plentiful oil and gas. Um, and it, it, also, it also is a trading uh, superpower. So uh, it is the number one trading partner for the Middle East right now, and also the largest foreign direct investor for many Middle Eastern countries. Um, and uh, the, the Middle East is also strategically located for, for uh, Chinese goods to pass uh, from the Indian Ocean by sea uh, to key markets in the US uh, and Europe through uh, the Suez Canal and other waterways. Um, so there is now, 
a shift happening definitely in, in the relationship between the Gulf and China and the Gulf and the United States. That's really interesting, Ahmed. Um, it's for me, as you know, I primarily focus on sub-Saharan Africa and you've seen similar shifts there as well for a long time. The US was a very powerful trade partner to, to the continent, but as long ago as 2009, China overtook the US with regard to trade with the continent. And it does definitely sound like we're seeing a similar, a similar shift in power relations here. You mentioned different um, kind of types of relationships here. You touched on the economic, um, you touched on military aspects. Can you tell us a bit more about this kind of increasing intertwinement in trade and economic terms, Ahmed? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, just as China needs, is, is, is so hungry for, for these uh, hydrocarbon resources that the Gulf has, it, for them, it's a matter, for, for, the, for, for China, it's a matter of energy security. For the Gulf, though, it's a matter of demand security. There's there's a great degree of complementarity there. The Gulf depends uh, in, in, in a very big way on, on oil income to fund uh, lavish welfare spending and to fund ambitious diversification schemes that are currently underway in, in the likes of Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, to uh, move away from a dependence on, on, on oil and gas. So uh, China imports typically 40% of its crude oil from, uh, from the Gulf, and that really serves to, to uh, uh, replenish and, and uh, the, the coffers of, of Gulf states uh, to make these investments possible. Um, on the diplomatic level, you're also seeing much more engagement. Uh, the, there was a first-of-its-kind visit, group visit by four GCC Gulf Corporation Council uh, foreign ministers, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, and Bahrain, who were uh, visited their, their Chinese con- counterpart in the eastern uh, eastern city of, of, of Wuxi in China. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but they talked about um, securing a free trade agreement between the GCC and and China. In in quick succession, the Chinese foreign minister also hosted the foreign ministers of Iran and Turkey. Of course, as we know, China is party to the Iran nuclear talks that are ongoing in Vienna as a permanent member of the Security Council. So also has a very close relationship with Iran. They signed a 25-year uh, cooperation uh, agreement with Iran last year uh, and are now talking about activating it. There are uh, there's uh, Iran is, is a sizable supplier of oil to, to China. And uh, in that same week, Syria actually formally joined the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so there, there's, there's a, a desire on China's part to integrate as many, as many states in the Middle East into the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, developing infrastructure do- jointly with these countries and creating that connectivity between uh, uh, China and the critical markets that it serves uh, in, in Europe, in the US, uh, but also in, in the region. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like a real uptick in both diplomatic um, engagement as well as a lot of focus on energy security. Um, Let me bring in Jens here. So you've been following this from the Chinese side. How do you view this deepening of the China-Gulf economic relationship? 
Thank you, um, um, thank you, Isabel. Um, so I think um, Ahmed is making uh, a lot of very good points that are all uh, very important to follow and can help explain the relationship. But I think from the Chinese perspective, it's also important to um, to um, acknowledge that it's more to the Gulf-China relationship than uh, importing oil and gas from the region from from um, China's perspective. You have also seen that Chinese technology exports and investment in the region, uh, especially in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, has um, accelerated uh, rapidly um, over the last few years, um, in part because the region itself wants to diversify away from oil and gas, um, and China also wants to promote its own um, technology powerhouses, its own technology companies, and its own technologies for several reasons. Um, And the meeting that Ahmed um, just referred to uh, between the GCC and uh, and China, there was a lot of talk there about strengthening strategic partnerships, um, and obviously energy is a key a key element there. But I, I'm um, my feeling is that more and more you'll see that technology cooperation is something that will feature um, heavily. Um, and I would point out that um, in terms of specifics, obviously um, one of the um, one of the strategies from the Chinese government side in terms of its technology companies have. Uh, been to encourage them to go out. This was something Jiang Zemin, the former president, started with uh, a long time ago in terms of energy companies and getting them to secure energy. But now the strategy is more about um, encouraging technology companies and other companies in strategic sectors to go out and conquer the world, if you will, so that Chinese companies can become dominant players. And this is more and more focused on technology companies, which is, again, something you can link to the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, in the sense that that has also changed from purely development lending to a much more strategic focus on uh, technology companies, but also private sector and private banks being key players in um, in basically um, allowing the Chinese government to fulfill its uh, its foreign policy goals in that way. Um, and so I think there's some there's some important things to to, to point out there on the technology side and. If we want to use one specific, perhaps on um, looking at Huawei, which obviously uh, has caught, um, has created a lot of drama in Europe, um, and you could argue that one strategy would be uh, the the more entrenched Huawei or other digital um, Chinese technology companies are in these uh, in these countries, and the more entrenched their technology are in the digital infrastructure, the harder it will be to rip that technology out, which obviously is something we, we might discuss later, is something the US is concerned about, that this technology is, is literally everywhere now. And if that's been an issue in Europe, you can imagine that uh, it's probably going to be an issue in the UAE or, or, or Saudi Arabia or Qatar or other countries in the Gulf too, who might lean gradually more and more towards China and, and are not old allies like France or Germany are in, 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 in Europe. Um, if I can make one more uh, one more point, which perhaps um, acts as a counter to, I'm not sure we should lean too much into because it's quite fresh. But um, one uh, one counter to the um, to the closer ties, it was quite interesting to see um, a couple of weeks ago when China released its uh, its new five year digital economy plan uh, that it uh, did not specifically mention uh, the Gulf region and perhaps most surprisingly the UAE when it discussed plans for. Um, developing the digital Silk Road. The UAE has been a key partner um, in the Middle East in terms of developing uh, the digital Silk Road before, um, but there was no mention. Instead, you saw ASEAN being uh, highlighted as a, a key partner in terms of building out digital partnerships, even Central and Eastern Europe. 
Um, and this might be just a one-off, uh, and the UAE, UAE might pop in later, but it was quite interesting to, to see there that there might be some potential uh, changes and dynamics that haven't yet reached the, the surface. That's really interesting, Jens. And um, once again, it's something I have seen mirrored in Africa, especially on the 5G front, especially with regards to um, Huawei specifically. Um, Kenya was a key battleground between the US and China, where there was a real tussle about the US trying to push against um, Kenya going ahead with, it, with its 5G rollout with Huawei, which I think has now actually gone ahead. But so it sounds like there's a bit of a tension um, kind of within China, whether they really want to push for this, really want to push for this tech dominance, or whether they have some concerns that this US pressure against their technology might prevail. So what do you think is driving Chinese action in kind of pushing its technology out? Um, so obviously, in um, uh, in addition to to the example I mentioned now about Huawei, that um, the the more entrenched the technology is in, in digital infrastructure in other countries, the harder it is for the US to to push other countries to um, to um, to use uh, US technology or or uh, French or German or um, allied technology in general. Um, but I would also there's. There are, many, there are many things to point to, but um, um, I think um, one trend we've seen, especially over the last few years, is attempts by, by Beijing to get much more involved um, in global standard setting exercises through international organizations, very often through the UN. Um, and I think uh, one goal is then to try and if the, the more countries that use Chinese technology, um, the more common it is to use Chinese technology, the easier it will be for China to really get a footprint and have influence in these discussions about setting standards on, on, on globally used technologies. Uh, obviously, this is another uh, front between China and the US and, and, and the EU, perhaps also, um, where, where they're concerned about um, each side setting standards that will impact the rest of the world. Um, I think this is definitely something that uh, Beijing is um, is considering when it's um, uh, formulating its um, technology strategies outside of its borders. Uh, Ahmed also mentioned that they were uh, discussing finalizing um, a GCC a China free trade deal during the uh, these meetings recently. I think we can also perhaps this is probably more long term and, and and further ahead, but I think we can. Uh, it, it is perhaps safe to, to argue that China obviously is, um, or segments of, uh, of the Chinese political and business elite uh, are interested in uh, making the RMB, China's currency, more globally used. And the more trade deals you have um, with other countries, uh, the more obviously, in theory at least, uh, your currency should be used. China wants to basically have its own supply chain, so it's not um, reliant on other uh, countries for, for key technologies, but it also wants other countries to be reliant on China's uh, supply chains. And um, if you accomplish that and you get, for instance, countries in the GCC or other um, regions, ASEAN, for instance, um, entrenched in trade deals and involved in China's supply chains, they might also want more stability. They don't want to trade with another currency that's, um, that's fluctuating a lot. Um, uh, which, which obviously could impact the value and the cost of, of, of importing those technologies from China. So this is perhaps a bit more speculative, but it's not unlikely that China is considering how it might look in the future and um, that other countries potentially will be interested in tying uh, their currency to the RMB um, uh, to 
um, decrease um, currency uh, foreign exchange volatilities. Obviously, this would lead to um, much more prevalence of the RMB uh, in, in global trade and finance. I think that makes a lot of sense. So the idea of technology as a tool to get more of a seat at the table for global standard setting and as a tool to work on internationalizing the RMB. It's very interesting. I do want to touch on a slightly dis different aspect of technology here as well. So, of course, um, technology does not just have civilian uses. And I think there's been some tension, especially about supplying advanced weaponry to the Gulf, um, things such as drones. Ahmed, how does that come into it? The, the technology story is definitely dominated by 5G. Um, the rollout of 5G has been pervasive throughout uh, equipment provided by Huawei, has been pervasive throughout the Gulf. Um, it is the go-to uh, technology provider in this space, and for for reasons for all, I mean, the, the, it's it's cheaper, it's it's widely available, and so the West simply hasn't developed a a viable alternative to five G. Um, it has caused tensions, of course. Um, you know, you mentioned other forms of technology, tensions with the U.S. That is, other forms of technology include surveillance technology, and um, this is part of the digital Silk Road. China has made a lot of progress in this area and um, has been prepared to provide this technology without really asking questions about its use. Um, this surveillance technology that's, um, you know, it, 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 um, it is used in a large, to a large degree in, in cities in the Gulf, uh, integrated with, with, with smart cities and, and trying to uh, make uh, communication and, and transport uh, as secure as possible. But also, other uh, some people would would say cynical uses within uh, within the region. Um, you you alluded Isabel to to some non civilian uh, technological applications, and I would mention here the the you know the U S is by far again the largest supplier of weapons. I mean, it's the, this the U S sales of of weapons to the region. 2019 2020 was in the range of 15 to 20 billion dollars uh, China by comparison you know 650 million dollars not not even a billion um, US and Russia are, are, are definitely the top two providers but China is is increasing its 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 uh, its its share of of, of those uh, deals and especially on on weaponized drones uh, the US has been reluctant to provide its key allies the UAE and Saudi Arabia with with the late with the most advanced drones uh, known as the reaper uh, drones uh, uh, by a company called general atomics and um, after signing the abraham accords to begin normalizing ties with israel the uae was hoping that it could finally get its hands on those drones on those drones but uh, the us congress has been um, hasn't been as as forthcoming as they had expected in in uh, uh, in, in, in approving those sales uh, because of because of the UAE and, and Saudi's involvement in in conflicts uh, such as the we see in Yemen and uh, other other sources of tension between Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, China has been willing to step up and has been providing uh, their version of the Reaper drone and and uh, has been used actually by by the UAE and Saudi Arabia in, in various theaters. But this definitely, I mean, the five G especially does cause the, does cause tensions. And and one of the stumbling blocks, for instance, in the F thirty five fighter plane deal that the UAE had lined up after 
signing the, the uh, normalization accords with Israel uh, has been obstructed by this issue of 5G. The Americans have been pressuring, pressuring their Gulf allies to strip Huawei equipment from their 5G telecom networks in order to, to uh, clear the way for these sales to happen. Um, and of course, this, this puts the Gulf states in a bit of an uncomfortable position uh, because there is no viable alternative to Huawei at this time. Definitely, it sounds like um, kind of another additional strain on U.S. relations with China and how this does play out here and could really challenge sort of the, the U.S.'s traditional security guarantor role in the Gulf, even though China does sound at this point more more like an upstart when it comes to, to weapons um, deliveries to the Gulf. But maybe pivoting away from weapons slightly and talking about infrastructure, but still with a focus on security competition. Because China has recently, well, recently, I think it was in 2016, um, built its first overseas military base in Djibouti. And that's, of course, a highly strategic location with regard to the Gulf and strategic with regards to global shipping routes. And, of course, we have U.S. military bases all over the Gulf. So do you think there's a desire for China to project generally more military power in the region? Or is there something else behind that? I don't think so. I think the the Chinese want to have influence without being entangled. Um, they, 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 they look at the uh, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the, the drain on the U.S. economy and uh, the, the damage has done to the, to the U.S.'s reputation, especially as the way the withdrawal from Afghanistan, for instance, happened. Um, I think China isn't interested in that level of power projection uh, across the region. That said, they are very they care deeply about the security of, of strategic sea lines and, and, and sea line communication. Um, and, and the base in Djibouti is is right at the heart of that. Uh, Djibouti is in the Horn of Africa. It's uh, adjacent to the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is a strategic choke point uh, for the passage of, of, of goods exports uh, up the Red Sea and, and, and through the Suez Canal to, 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 to Europe and elsewhere. So it, it, it's no surprise that they decided to locate their only overseas naval facility, support facility in, in a place like Djibouti. And the Horn of Africa, as you know, is you know is a sphere of influence of, of the US historically and definitely the predominant ex, extra regional power. And so it, it, it doesn't sit well with the US uh, national security community community that, that China has developed this base since since 2017 and, and it has has been a launching pad for uh, you know concomitant with the base at Djibouti the Chinese have also been very active on 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 infrastructure and, and, and port infrastructure in particular and integrating ports with what they call industrial parks they are they are these complexes of, of you know park port complexes where there's industry and and uh, uh, oil refining and various other uh, industrial activities that the, that the Gulf states are trying to essentially kickstart with with joint Chinese investment. Um, but the, but the, the ports are, are, are especially important in, in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative because it, it, it addresses the need to connect uh, different markets together. And, and of course, market access is something that the, the, the Chinese policymakers uh, care deeply about. Um, and if you look at uh, the the worldwide port holdings that, that China has owned, acquired, or, or, or operates, um, they've invested 
uh, in more than in, in 100 ports in 63 countries, and, and 20 of those holdings are, are situated in, in the Middle East. So it definitely gives you a sense of, of, of the importance of, of ports to that, to that regional strategy. Uh, again, here, it causes tensions with, with the United States. It, it was recently revealed that uh, allegedly the Chinese were, were developing a military type facility at Khalifa port near the UAE capital of Abu Dhabi. And um, this was discovered by apparently by U.S. intelligence and uh, at the behest of Washington, the UAE uh, ordered that, that those construction works are halted and the project, you know, whether or not the Emiratis were aware or is, is, is not known, but um, that the, the, the prospect of having a Chinese military type facility uh, near the UAE capital where uh, 30 kilometers or so away from from uh, an air power base, an air base where the US troops are stationed and where there is where there are advanced US fighter planes uh, was something that the, the was not something that Washington was going to tolerate. And so it gives you an example of how there's a collision between China's um, infrastructure and, and, and strategic port development plans and U.S. strategic calculations in, in the region. Absolutely. Jens, how do you view this? What do you think is the view from Beijing on um, this interconnection between potential security interests, infrastructure, ports and sea lanes? Um, so, I mean, obviously, Ahmed is, 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 of course, right that China sees great benefit of having these strategically placed ports, uh, mainly commercial facilities uh, that can help facilitate trade in the region and get um, products from China shipped safely to Europe, for instance. Um, that is a great strategic benefit. Um, linking that to the, the issue that uh, Ahmed was just explaining now uh, about the this port uh, and potential military expansion in, in, in the UAE. I think uh, Beijing is also aware that there are limits, perhaps, at least at the moment, to um, uh, its military presence in, in the Gulf, both because of U the US presence, but also because of own restrictions in China's own backyard. I think China has uh, more than enough um, problems at the moment um, in a, around its own around its sea lanes uh, that are basically encircling um, uh, in its own backyard, so around Taiwan or the South China Sea, uh, the US, uh, the UK, um, the EU, um, Japan, Australia are all now tying together, creating alliances um, basically to try and um, limit uh, Chinese military power in uh, China's own backyard. So I think that's probably the priority, um, and which my view is that China's ambitions for militarizing port facilities might be limited, at least in the near term, until they potentially resolve um, some of these tensions in its own backyard. Um, I also think you can, uh, you can see in terms of uh, being able to safely ship products um, through uh, the Middle East and to Europe, for instance, I think China is trying to uh, find ways to diversify and uh, safeguard um, ex uh, its own exports to, to key uh, markets in, um, in especially Europe. They have, for instance, been expanding rail capacity directly from China to uh, land ports in Germany uh, or uh, down to um, the port facility in Athens that China obviously controls um, as a key distribution hub from there, which allows them to avoid going through key choke points um, in the Middle East. 
Um, and it's the same when you when when you talk about energy security, which was obviously some of the key, just perhaps the key tenant of of uh, President Xi Jinping's uh, focus on um, on national security. He was very keen from the beginning on um, on uh, on energy security, and you can see their uh, attempts at uh, diversifying by. Uh, developing um, um, facilities for gas, for instance, in, in Myanmar or, or other places in, in, in Southeast Asia, as well as building out China's own um, uh, domestic uh, renewable energy capacities, not to mention also oil and gas in China too, something they've been uh, focusing much more on um, over the last few years. Uh, it might not be successful, but they want to at least be able to extract uh, everything they can domestically to try and reduce uh, these dependencies. So I think that kind of creates uh, a picture of how, yes, they want to have these strategically placed ports and they might also want to militarize some of them, or at least in the region, to be able to safeguard. But at the same time, they're trying to uh, avoid having too much of a military presence and they're trying to find other ways to safeguard uh, its economic interests um, from, from the region or through the region to, to Europe. Thank you, Jens. So that sounds like not only are there US and Chinese interests to balance, but there are also different Chinese interests that Beijing needs to balance as well. So before we wrap up, um, Ahmed, as a final word, are there any key events or any key developments that we should keep our eyes on this year to tell us more about how um, this situation might develop? I don't know if I could point to a one specific event but i think isabel the the the, the word balance is is what comes to mind um, uh, you know as you say uh, it'll be a challenge for uh, the gulf states to balance their their uh, desire to um, uh, maintain this vital economic relationship with with china and at the same time placate us concerns about uh, chinese uh, the, the growth of Chinese influence and the, the, what they perceive as China's encroachment on their on their security interests, on U.S. security interests in the Middle East. There's no doubt that the Gulf will continue to prioritize and attach greater importance to the relationship with Washington. It is just too historic and too embedded, and the security architecture in the region is, is centered around U.S. Uh, force strength. Um, it is, it is uh, uh, just... Part and, and and the requirements of military interoperability also make it difficult to to rely on on another uh, uh, source of, of of military power. But the the what what we we should ob- try and preserve pr- uh, uh, observe this year is is the outcome of of a global posture review that uh, the U.S. Department of Defense is currently undertaking. And, and is considering a right-sizing of, of its military presence in the Middle East, uh, which is something that the Gulf will watch closely. Uh, what message will that send? Are, is the U.S. going to continue retrenching and continue to, to uh, reallocate assets to the Indo-Pacific, which they've identified as, as the most important strategic competitive area uh, uh, in the relationship with China? Uh, or will they double down and... and, and, and Try and repair their status as the security guarantor in 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 the Middle East. Um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll maybe end with with the 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 events of, of the last two weeks where we've had attacks on on the UAE from uh, uh, Iranian proxies in Yemen, and what is what is perceived as inaction on the U.S. side uh, and simply calling for calm and and uh, de-escalation, and not really. Uh, 
affecting things on the ground is is you know the Gulf monarchies look at this and they think, can we really rely on on the U.S. as a long term uh, uh, protective umbrella, uh, or do we need to continue hedging and and cultivating ever growing ties with with the other uh, great power uh, that is China? Um, so it will be a balancing act, a difficult one for for the the Gulf states. Thank you, Ahmed. I think that's a very interesting note to leave it on. So as always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to the Gulf or specifically to the impact of um, US-China tensions on the region, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find the contact details for Jens and Ahmed and for our sectoral teams on the GC website, which you can find at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you, Jens. And thanks to you for listening. Bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.